Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. What are we doing as a church? Or to put it another way, how do we measure success? Are we right now, remove the optimistic glasses and just look at ourselves, are we right now, as a body, doing the will of God for us? If Christ suddenly walked through those doors, would he say, well done, your lampstand shines brightly? How would we even know? How do you know if we're winning? Are we winning? Are we losing? How do we know? Paul has spoken often in this letter to the Philippians in chapter 1 of this great task that we have as the people of God. And he has called it defending and advancing the gospel. He's talked about this a lot. You remember back in chapter 1, verse 5, he spoke of your partnership, Philippians, with me, in the gospel. Verse 7, you are all partakers with me of grace in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 12, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 16, I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 25, I know I'll remain and continue with you all for your joy, your progress and joy in the faith, which is the gospel. Verse 27, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here is our great task. Here is our great work. Written 2,000 years ago, applies as much to us today as ever. Our work is the gospel, to defend it from those who would threaten it, to advance it by bringing it to others, that they may believe in Christ, see what he has done upon the cross by faith, and be saved forevermore from the wrath of God. That's what we're doing. And I don't think anyone in here would deny that. Of course, that's our job. It's the gospel. But I do want to push upon that for just a second because that's not actually our most essential task. How do I know this? Well, you remember in Philippians 1 that there was a group of people who were advancing the gospel out of envy and rivalry. Paul said he rejoiced nonetheless that the gospel was going forth because that's what he's excited about. But let me ask you, if Paul said that about you or about us as a local church, we are advancing the gospel, check, we're doing our job out of envy and rivalry. Is that winning? So you see, there's something even more essential than merely advancing the gospel. That's a huge part of it. But if you dig underneath that, there has to be something more. Because there are ways to advance the gospel that aren't winning, that aren't good. So Paul had told us that passage itself of those spiteful preachers in chapter 1 was a sort of rebuke and a warning, don't be like them. Even if Paul rejoiced, it wasn't a success. If our community knew us as a church that gets the job done, we advance the gospel but we do it by manipulating people emotionally and sort of threatening and bullying them into the doors of the church? Is that a success? Or if in the defense of the gospel, we were all academically trained 
to do the greatest apologetics in this whole city, to defend every point of the gospel chapter and verse. But we did it in a way that was cruel and critical of everyone else. We are defending the gospel. Are we winning? Is that what we're supposed to be doing? There has to be, yes, but something underneath it, even more essential to what we're doing as a church. And Jesus tells us what that is. You remember the passage? What's the greatest of every command ever given to you as a Christian? You shall love the Lord your God, Jesus says, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first or most fundamental commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets, your whole Old Testament. Really, we can say all of Scripture rests upon this foundation. So advance the gospel, but something's underneath it. And it is this twofold command to love God and to love others. Your neighbor is everybody. So our most important task, really, the first one is to love God. You know that. But that is actually a very invisible task. I can't look at you and see if you love God. There's not a mark upon your forehead. There's, therefore, in the second commandment, something more visible. That you love others. I can look at your life and see if you love others. By the way that you live it. There's something true of that in the first one. And yet, Scripture emphasizes that the most visible of the most fundamental commandments, the way you know if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Are you doing that? This is why the Apostle John can say, He who does not love his brother whom he has seen, visibly, see him, cannot love God whom he's not seen. So if we're just looking outwardly at us as a body and saying, are we winning? The most fundamental command for us here is, are we loving other people like ourselves? If you're doing that, you're winning. Out from that, from our love for God and each other, but out from that comes defending and advancing the gospel. That's how people can be saved. That's the message that unites us all together. But underneath our defense and advance of the gospel is a love for each other. This is why in previous decades, it was very common and very wrong for Christian evangelists to use forms of manipulation to advance the gospel. I remember being at a local used bookstore and I found this small book on evangelism. And this must have been, I don't know, from the 60s or 70s. And I was looking through it and it was an instruction manual for how you enter into someone's house, you isolate one person, you get this person by themselves and it tells you in there and then at this point you bring your hand upon their shoulder, turn them away from the other person so they can't be distracted, really put the pressure on, go in for the kill and you've brought someone to know Christ. That's wrong. Look. That's advancing the gospel, but we know that's wrong. Why? Because more essential is, do you love them? That's just as wrong as hundreds of years ago when it was common practice for Christian nations to go conquering with the sword and then you take your captives and you force them to convert to Christianity. Have you advanced the gospel? No. No, you have not. Why? Because yes, our 
task as a church is to advance the gospel, but it has to be coming out of something deeper, and that is a genuine love for each other and for those we're bringing the gospel to. So you want to know how to know if we're succeeding as a body. Are we advancing the gospel with genuine love in our hearts for each other and the lost? If you're doing that, you're winning. Simple enough. We're going to see this in our passage today. Paul has been, as I said, over and over talking about advancing the gospel, but now he's going underneath it. He's saying you need to advance the gospel, but not merely that. While you're advancing the gospel, what we see today has to be true of you as a local fellowship, of me as part of you. It has to be true of us, and it is this, love for each other. Let's see it here in Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I probably don't even have to tell you this at this point. This is all one sentence in the Greek. <laughs> it's been that way almost every week. It's one long sentence, and it has two parts to it. It has an if part and a then part. The if part is verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, etc. And then beginning in verse 2, all the way down through 4, that's all one sentence in the Greek, and it is the then part. If verse 1 is true... Then, you are required, as a believer, to do verses 2 through 4. That's how this is set up. And the ifs in verse 1 are not really ifs. They're senses. That is, they're since. So, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is, etc., etc., Paul is not doubting if there's encouragement in Christ. Of course, Paul believes that there is. But what he's doing is, for his original audience and for you, he's bringing you into his argument, his one sentence here. He's drawing you in. You have to answer the question, is there any encouragement in Christ? Any at all? And we all say, well, of course. <laughs> of course there is. And so forth for all of these. Any comfort from love? Definitely. And if you're going to say yes to verse 1, which you should, you must, the then of verses 2 through 4 are just what follow naturally. If verse 1 is true about Christianity, if as a local fellowship, verse 1 is true about us, about who we are, then you do verses 2 through 4. So the one leads into the other, and that's the way that this passage is set up. Since verse 1 is what Christianity is, 
verses 2 through 4 should be what Christians do. What it is, what it does. And what we do is what? He's been hitting in chapter 1 on advance the gospel, advance the gospel, advance the gospel. But here he goes underneath. It says, as you're advancing the gospel, you're a Christian. You love each other. It's what you do. It's according to who you are. So this is our essential task, and that's why we're going to look at it in those two parts this morning. The sermon will follow the text. First, in verse 1, the if. What is true of you as a Christian church? And because that's true, verses 2 through 4, what is your task? What should you be doing every day of your life so that you're succeeding or winning as a church? So if you've ever wondered, on a Sunday morning, groggy eyes, drinking coffee, just got the kids here, what am I doing here? <laughs> now you know. It will be shown to you by the very mouth of God in the inspired text right here. So, therefore, let's look at first, verse 1, the if. What is true about us as a church that leads into what we do in the rest of the verses? So, Paul begins, if or since there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, drawing you in with these rhetorical ifs, are there any of these things here? Yes. All of these things are just a part of what it means to be Christian in a local gathering of Christians. There's not discouragement in Christ and discomfort from love. Of course these things are a part of who we are. But he feels the need before he tells them to love each other to remind them and have them agree that this is what you are. In this room. Is there any, even just a little, he says any, okay? Is there any encouragement in Christ in this room? Look, we as Christians, we suffer afflictions just like the rest of the world. We get the diseases, we fall like poor Dawn did and hurt, her, hurt herself. We experience conflict, we face all of these difficulties, are we therefore doomed to shrink and shrivel into ourselves like a raisin and become that old man on the porch who's yelling at the neighbor kids getting in his yard because he's had a hard life? You have a hard life. Why don't you shrivel in upon yourself and make your focus all right here? Why not? Because you know what you are? You are part of a community where there is at least some encouragement in Christ. Is there nothing in your relationship with Christ that when the difficulties of life come can buoy you up and lift you up with a sort of consolation of the soul? That's what Paul's saying. Is there nothing? Nothing at all. That's why you're very upset with everyone and shrunk in upon yourself and unkind at all of the difficulties of life that you've endured. It's because there's no encouragement in Christ. And Paul says, if meaning since there is, surely, encouragement in Christ. Is there not? Of course there is. That is what it means to be a Christian. 
Is there any, he says, comfort from love? Don't you live in a world of love? I'm not talking about this world we live on, but here in this fellowship among believers, this is a world of love. Not only do you have the cataracts of the love of God pouring onto you every day, you see it in the gospel. You have a Savior who died upon a tree to deliver your soul from death. You have entered into the very love of God and it has continued all week whether you've done great as a Christian or poorly and here you come to a fellowship where things are not perfect but you have people around you who love you. Even if people don't know you, they love you. They will come and greet you. They will smile. They will want to be involved in your life. Is there no comfort from that environment whatsoever? Is that the reason that when you face disappointments in your life and you've had other people burn you or a difficult work situation, that's why you've become angry at others and you don't trust anyone and you isolate yourself away? Is there really no comfort from the world of love that you live in? Surely there is. Is there any participation in the Spirit, meaning a joint sharing in the Holy Spirit together so that we are, in the metaphor of Paul, like one body. I see some fingers out there. I see some toes. I won't tell you who. There you are. I see some arms. I see some legs. I see a head. Christ as the head. We see all of the parts of the body with one Spirit inside of it. There's no toes. No toes here. Guaranteed. Is there no participation in the Spirit here? Is there any affection in true Christianity? Are you going to tell me that your Christian experience from the time you've known Christ toward, till now has had no warmth of feeling toward anyone else? I know it's not always that way, but is there any, is there any affection? Is there any sympathy? When I look at this room and I see believers, when you receive that PPA email telling you about a prayer request of someone in trouble, doesn't your soul feel burdened? If anyone suffers, we suffer together. Don't you feel that sort of sympathy toward others? Is there any of that? Is that what you are? Paul is saying that's what you are. When you leave this building and you go back out into the world among unbelievers and you are at work or in your community and seeing people out in public and people are hostile and can be cruel and treat you horribly. That makes sense out there. And such were we. But when you come here, Paul is saying, verse 1, these are the things that you are as a local community of believers. Look, I know that churches and our church are not always like this. But that's why Paul says, is there any? Sure, I'm sure you could go out and find a turtle with five legs, okay? But that doesn't change the fact that turtles have four legs. That is an exception, and it doesn't change the rule. And you will go out and find churches, and even here in our own fellowship, where there is petty conflict taking place, and people will burn you. But what Paul is saying in verse 1 of this text is that that's not essential to what we are. There might be a weird appendage sticking out and the world looks at it and says that's very odd and that happens but it doesn't change the fact that this is what Christianity at its essence is. This is what Christ came to establish on the earth. Local fellowships like this and I can testify and say as your friend and pastor, this is in you. I see it all the time. This is what you are in your essence with exceptions but this is the rule. 
That's why when you walk in here on a Sunday morning, and there are different seasons and conflicts you have to deal with, but you know, when I walk in here on a Sunday morning, you can almost smell the fragrance, fragrance, the sweet fragrance of fellowship, of love for each other that you just don't find in the world. Even hobbies that bring people together, you don't find this sort of affection one for another, this sort of intervention into each other's lives and bringing meals and wanting to know genuinely how you are doing. But this is what you are. Now, don't misunderstand me. This isn't something that you can become proud about. We're going to see that. This isn't, wow, you guys are so awesome and incredible. <laughs> it's not true for any of us. We're going to see that it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is something that God does in his people. And you can see that hinted even in our text. Because you may have noticed that the Trinity is hidden within verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, second person of the divine trinity, skip over any participation in the spirit, third person of the trinity. It reminds us of the end of 2 Corinthians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship, the exact same word in our text for participation in, the Holy Spirit be with you all. If you are here as a community of believers who are born of God, Scripture says, and if that is the sword of God you are born of, this God who for all eternity in the past dwelt in an inter-Trinitarian love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, no division, no conflict, no problems whatsoever, but in this perfect harmony of persons, so united that it's beyond our ability to comprehend. We say it's one being. God is one being, yet three persons, but not three beings. How can this be? I don't know, but you see such a unity together, and it has always been that way, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, here you are, a community born out of the inter-Trinitarian love of God for all eternity. So, what sort of community do you think you will be? Encouragement in Christ. Participation in the Spirit. This is what you are. You don't always feel like it. Especially very early in the morning when you're grumpy. You might not feel like it. But Paul is saying, these things are so. Beloved, John tells us, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if you live here every day in this God-created environment of love, of encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation together in the Spirit, affection, sympathy, then what's that going to make you? What are you going to be? Paul is saying, these things are true. You are going to love. In this environment, will you not lock arms together with the brothers and sisters who sit around you, even those who you don't perfectly get along with, but you lock arms together with a tear of gratitude, thanking God that he has granted you these brothers and sisters in the faith, and together, in love, you work to advance the gospel by bringing it to others that they might enter into the community of love. That is what you are. If that's the air you breathe, if that's the water you swim in, 
That's what you are. And that's Paul's first point. Since these things are what you are, now he gets to the task that you are called to do. That begins verses 2 through 4. So now moving over. The things that you are, in verse 1, they are a little bit vague, and intentionally so. Paul is adding one thing after another with no explanation, because he wants you to feel the richness of it, the force of it. So that's why he puts them rapid fire one after another. But now, if we really want to live this out, we're going to need a little bit more of the specifics. What does it mean then? If that's what you are, then what do you do? What are we called to do as a fellowship advancing the gospel? So we saw the if or the since, and now we're moving to the then. Here it is, beginning in verse 2. Paul says, if that's what you are, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You can't quite see it in the English, but the heart of the command is this, being of the same mind. Paul says, if you do that, that would fill up his joy. Because then you're doing what you're called to do. That's your task. Being of the same mind, advancing the gospel that way. Grammatically, in the original, everything that follows after being of the same mind is subordinate to it. In other words, that's the main command. That's the then. That's what you do. You all, of the same mind. Everything else that follows is to explain it, to give it greater detail for us. Our former pastor Ernie would at this point always say, I hope you brought your steel-toed boots. Because when we get into the specifics here, well, it's highly offensive <laughs> to the natural person. Listen, nothing in the specifics of what it means for us to have the same mind, of what we're supposed to do in this world, nothing about it is natural to us. What are we by nature? We are competitive. Even if you say, I'm not a competitive person, you may even delight in how you are less competitive than other people. <laughs> we are competitive by nature. This is part of why Darwinian evolution, which is a false theory, but this macro evolution of all creatures coming from a single origin, part of why it gains traction in culture and has a sort of scientific appeal to it, because just your experience of everyday life, you say, oh, certainly, not just in the animal world, but among people, we're always competing and killing each other <laughs> to get our own way. This is what we naturally are. Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, that's the world, you know that their rulers lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's what you do in the Gentile world. You try to get what you want by trampling over what other people want. That's called power. People oppose you, trample them down. That's how it works among the Gentiles. They lord it over. The kings, the rulers, they do what they want. And if you don't like it, tough. They have the power. That's the way the world works. And all of us since Adam's fall 
contain a little Gentile ruler in our heart. All of us. We are born with the king of Tyre in our heart who says, I am a god. I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas. That's in there. We all begin our lives with the king of Babylon in our heart looking out, saying, isn't this, whatever you've done with your life, isn't this great Babylon which I've built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? <laughs> you don't say it that explicitly, but you live this way at times. This is that little Gentile ruler in your heart. We could call this, what? Selfish ambition? Maybe conceit? That's what Paul calls it. We go out conquering and to conquer, subjecting all others, whether by an exertion of our power explicitly, you do what I say, intimidation and bullying, or for some of us, if we don't feel that will work, we give the cold shoulder. We try to make the people feel bad so that they change their mind. We do what we need to, even if it hurts others, to get what we want. Isn't that what we are naturally? It is. That is natural. Now, you may say, well, we're in Christ. We're not natural anymore. Exactly right. You've got good theology. That's entirely true. When you enter into a relationship with Christ through faith in him, then your old self dies. And there's a new self, a new principle of the heart within you. But Paul, who teaches this, just as clearly teaches that until you get to glory, there is something called the flesh that still clings to you. In theology, we call this remaining corruption. You at your root are changed, but there's a remaining corruption. There's still something of the natural man or woman that fights against the spirit who dwells within you. And so, all of us, even as believers, have to fight against selfish ambition and conceit, looking to our own interests. That's our default. We need to be told, just like the Galatian church, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. That's to a Christian church, by the way. With James, the Lord asks our church, what causes quarrels and conflicts among you? And we say, well, it's the person we're fighting with, all of their problems. <laughs> Sorry, that's not what the text follows with. It says, isn't this that your passions, your passions are at war within you? This is to believers? That's remaining corruption. All of us still have this volatile flame within us that wants to burst forth and dominate others, even in the church, and get our way, even if it costs others their comfort and happiness and spiritual benefit, as long as we get our way, get the kind of music we want, sorry to step on toes, get what we want to see happening, as long as we get that. It doesn't matter if others suffer. That's still in there. That's the little king of Tyre with his little tiny scepter in there trying to get his way. And we do that. You do that in various ways. I do that. But can you take fire into your bosom and not get burned? This is why many churches, sadly, ours, every church, you will find conflict 
in those local fellowships. You say, wow, if everything in verse 1 is true, this should be a place of perfect harmony. <laughs> it should. And that's why we have this text. But it's because it's not that we have this text also. Every church has conflict. So unbelievers sometimes, and believers, will come to a church, find conflict and petty dissensions and say, if that's church, I don't want anything to do with it. But here's the point of this passage. That's not church. Not essentially. That's the five-legged turtle. It happens, but it's not what turtles are. It's not what Christian community is meant to be. And even, let's be honest, in practice, it's not always what Christian communities are. Typically, the fighting that happens in true churches are the things that get airtime and everybody knows about and it's shocking and your attention goes to it. It's kind of like reading the news. You typically are reading about the very worst things happening and it can feel like that's all that's going on. It can feel that way in churches too. Churches are always fighting. Listen, throw out the word always. They're not always fighting. Look at you guys. You're all calm and seated. You guys aren't fighting right now. Look. There is a lot of harmony that happens in the church. A broken world, sometimes the extra appendage is on there, but generally speaking, this is the rule, there is a love for one another, and that is what the Christian community is, and that's what it does. So to be specific, what, is it, what are we doing? How are we loving each other? How are we doing what God's calling us to do? He says here, Essentially, it's this. You must be of one mind. That does not mean you have to agree on every single point of doctrine or interpretation with everyone else in this room. That is an impossible ideal not to be realized in this world. There will always be points where we're striving together to understand. We won't always agree on every secondary issue. The primary matters... We do have to be one mind together in that way. The Trinity, the sacrificial death of Christ for sinners, his atonement for us, we can't disagree about that. So part of being one mind means we all agree with what? The gospel. How can you defend and advance the gospel if you don't agree with what it is? So we have to agree about the essentials of the gospel itself. But beyond that, Having one mind does not mean you have to agree on every secondary matter. Number one, is simply not going to happen. But number two, even in our text, when Paul goes on to explain what he means by having one mind, how does he do it? He says, having the same love. That's a part of having one mind. Being in full accord or harmony and of one mind. We have to agree on the content of the essentials, but in the secondaries, we have to labor together one mind, which includes more than just coming to the point where we agree on everything. Most conflicts in any given church, there are conflicts that are definitely about the essentials, very much happens in churches and denominations, and then separation is entirely necessary. But most conflicts that happen in local churches are not about the essentials primarily. It's not someone walks down the aisle and says, I don't believe Jesus is God. <laughs> That's very easy, easy to handle, actually. 
Many of the conflicts are secondary matters. Back in the day, it would be, can we use drums in worship? Can you use anything besides the organ and the piano? Today, we think more alike on that, but there was a time when that was not true. Or for some, it's the King James Version of the Bible is the only version that we can use, and if you don't, you're unfaithful. Most conflicts are of that nature. What happens is somebody offends your preference, or even what you think is wisdom and will lead in a better direction in the church. Somebody offends that, and you can't get your way, so you dwell on it, and it rises up to fever pitch in your mind, and there's a break. This is most conflict that happens in the church. But this isn't you. We do this sometimes, but this isn't us. This isn't Christian community. This isn't Faith Bible Church. When we are this way, and we are sometimes, let's admit, we are the five-legged turtle. And it's as weird to the world as it is to us. It's not how it should be. And it's not what we essentially are. This is what you should be doing. Advancing the gospel together. Having the same love one toward another. Having the same mind. Meaning thinking about the essentials the same, laboring on the secondaries to come to agreement and thinking well of each other where possible, being in full accord, not nitpicking every little thing you disagree with about somebody, being of one mind, assuming the best until you find out otherwise rather than the reverse of that. There are lots of moving parts in the machinery of any church, including ours, and Paul is saying, don't let there be a grinding that's wearing down the parts. Let it be well-oiled, moving smoothly, and if there is a real catch in the machinery, in the cogs, then turn the machine off and go fix that real quick, and then turn the machine back on. Don't let it keep grinding. This is one of the key parts if you want to have this sort of one mind with others. This is one of the key things, is you have to fix issues quickly. I only say this because Jesus taught this more than once. He said, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, turn that thing off. First, before you do anything else, be reconciled to your brother. Fix the problem. Then come and offer your gift. Continue on. And again, if your brother sins against you, Jesus says, go, go, go. Don't stay. You go. And you tell him his fault, not publicly, in private, between you and him alone. You might say, that's a odd process. I don't see in there, where did Jesus talk about taking it and dwelling on it until it begins to boil over so that when you come to the person, it's exploding out of your nostrils. Or where is the part that talks about airing the grievances to others first so that they can be outraged with you? <laughs> Notice it's not there. It's not there in the English. It's not there in the Greek. If you want to have one mind, you don't have to agree on every point of doctrine. You do on the essentials and we labor on the secondaries. But if you want to have one mind... You've got to have the same love for each other, which means you deal with conflicts quickly and you do it with courage. Sometimes in our cowardice, we want to go talk to others or we just want to think about it. We don't want to confront the issue. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. You have to have one mind and that requires this. 
point is really this. You have to work. It's not default. You have to work at fostering good thoughts about other people in this room. Don't expect it to just be that way. You have to work at it. How do you do it when they offend you? Number one, if it's so large of an offense, it's like a burr in your sock and you just can't get over it and you think it's genuine sin, then go to them. The law of the Old Testament said, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. So reason frankly with them, privately, between you and them. Deal with the issue and if it gets out of hand, bring in elders and let's deal with the issue. So... You have to do that. If it's a minor offense or just one of those grading things, that's how the person is, it's not necessarily sin, then you might have to cover that in love and then pray for them. And when you're with others, speak well of them and write them an encouraging note and be gracious toward them until your heart follows. This is how you be of one mind. Now, if you want to get even more specific, well... Paul provides it, verses 3 and 4. And these are really the words that strike us between the armor. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is the day for the coup. This is the day to throw the king of Tyre off of the throne of your heart, out of there. Christ has removed him, but he's still lingering, and you've got to get rid of him. You've got to throw him off his lofty height. Or Nebuchadnezzar, you need to send him out to the field to eat grass like a bird until he learns his place. You've got to take that little Gentile ruler in your heart, humble that ruler. That's what Paul is saying here. Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing with a self-focus where you're above others. Nothing, not one thing. You don't do that. But in humility, you count others more important. This does not mean, by the way, that other people genuinely are more important than you. You understand that? This means that all of us, fairly equally, are unimportant compared to God. <laughs> That's why Paul is saying you can think more of the interests of others, Think of them more than yourself, not because somehow they are more inherently worthy than you are. It's that we're all very unworthy. All of us are made out of the same dirt. It's God alone who is great. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So until you see that little ruler in your heart sees that all of us are like dust on the scales, all of us are nothing, all of us but by the grace of God, so go we into the life of prostitution and drug dealing and whatever is evil in your mind, that's all of us and that humbles you, that's the only way that in humility, instead of being offended by the vices of others, you can say, wow, that's what I would be. And I get that I could be that someday and let me enter into this person's life and Help them. Care for them. This kind of humility, according to verse 3, changes you from being a black hole that just sucks all the light and warmth all from around you right into yourself and consumes it, 
Because you're focused here on me and are they thinking of me enough and are they rightly concerned about the difficulties I'm experiencing and why are they talking about them? They haven't talked about me. There has to be a 50 fit. This focus on yourself that sucks everything into it, you can, according to this, stop doing that as of right now. Stop. And instead be like a star, like the sun that's giving warmth. That sort of humility that frees you to know that you're nothing and so you can consider others as more important than yourself. Think about them more. How do you do that? Verse 4 continues, let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Listen, when we do this as a church, that's when we're succeeding and not before that. If we were to grow numerically, everybody invited lots of people and lots of people came and we were just exploding in growth and a bigger building and exciting programs, well, that would be wonderful, yes? Maybe. Because there are ways to do that without really caring about anyone except yourself. Look, all of us like when our team is big and strong and succeeding outwardly. We all like that. There is a way to advance the gospel, to grow your church that is just you considering your own interests first. And if we do that, then the world will look and say, wow, what a successful church. And God will look and say, what a failure. This right here, it's not natural, but this is the measure of success for us. We're not a business crunching numbers trying to make numbers for the end of the quarter. That's not what we are. We are fighting our own sin and trying to live in a way where I think of your interests before I think about mine. This is what you're called to do. If you feel yourself to be a part of the body of Christ and you are regularly conscious of the needs and the pains of others and trying to alleviate them and help, you're winning. Doesn't matter if you've got a disease, if you're in a small church, and the world hates you, you are absolutely winning. And there is an eternal weight of glory waiting for you. That's the measure of success. So, in conclusion, and just very practically, how do we know as a body if we're doing what we need to be doing? Here's one way to test. If throughout this coming week, you think more about less about, sorry, if you think less about your job, your upcoming promotion, your house, your hopes, aspirations, dreams for your life, less, you think less about those and relatively more about the needs the interests and concerns, the hopes, the aspirations, the health, the spiritual wellness of other people who are in this room. You think more about that, less about yours than you did last year? You're winning. Well done, good and faithful servant. So may God help us to be. Let's pray. Lord, I plead with you to help us to be what this text presents that we are and must do. I pray that you would help us pry us from worldly versions of success and let us be this and not less than this, Lord. I pray you would help us to be content to be nothing, 
that you might be all and help us to excel still more in loving one another from the heart, purifying ourselves for a brotherly and a sisterly affection. I pray it would abound here, even if no other markers of earthly success do, that we would have this, that from the heart we love each other, from the heart we love the lost, and in this attitude we advance your great gospel. For the sake of your name, amen.